2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is what the word says. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because its glory because of its glory which was being brought to an end will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I, I previewed this passage on Tuesday with the staff, and when I previewed this passage this past Tuesday, I, I admitted, I said, I have struggled how to divide chapter 3, and, and I never could come to a good way because all of chapter 3, in my mind, is, is bound together, and so that's why I read the entire chapter, that's why I'm preaching the entire chapter. But to understand chapter 3, you also must understand or at least have a, a working knowledge of Genesis chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, and 33, and 34. And so I said, how, what do you, how do you do that? Sh should I pre-preach all of those chapters and then come to chapter 3? Well, I don't have time for that this morning. I wish I did. I, I would say to you just to, in your personal Bible reading, 
Do not neglect the reading of the Old Testament. When you're reading through Genesis chapter 19 through 34, it may be that as you're reading that account of Moses going up on the mountain and coming back down and, and going back up on the mountain and all the law that God gives him, you may read through that thinking, what significance does this have to me? And then you come to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and this entire passage hangs on you understanding those chapters. Now, I don't have time to preach all of that this morning. But, but I do want to give you sort of a general overview of those chapters so that you'll have some sense of what Paul is talking about here. So those of you who are old like me, this phrase will ring a bell. Here are the cliff notes for, for Exodus. I think I said Genesis before. I meant Exodus chapter 19 through 34. Here are the cliff notes. After the Hebrews left Egypt, God called Moses to meet him on Mount Sinai with the purpose of giving him the law. And there God spoke to Moses, his law, for Moses to take to the people. When Moses returned to the people after receiving the law, the people were so afraid of being even close to the presence of God and the glory of God that they said to Moses, in Exodus chapter 20, they said, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of, the li of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were afraid of the glory of God. Exodus chapter 20 contains what you might be most familiar with when we refer to the Ten Commandments. That's where that's found. However, chapters 21 through 31 contain God's law on everything from how man is to relate to God, how we are to relate to one another, and even specifics on the tabernacle and the garments of the priest and implements to be used in, in tabernacle worship. Chapter 33 of Exodus ends with God writing the law on two stone tablets with his finger. That's what Paul is referencing when he talks about stone tablets in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 32 begins with the news that the people, <clears throat> while waiting on Moses, as he met with God on the mountain, fashioned for themselves a pagan idol out of the gold that they had, uh, that God had given to them from Egypt. They fashioned that gold into a calf, and they were, they were worshiping around it, fornicating around it, being wicked around it. Chapter 32 through 33 recounts God's wrath toward, God's, toward the people, Moses' anger and discipline with the people's rebellion, and his pleading with God not to abandon them. Exodus chapter 34 recounts God's mercy to renew his covenant with the people by calling Moses again to meet with him on the mountain. You may remember when Moses discovered the the wickedness of the people in anger he threw the tablets that God had written the law on down and they broke so in this chapter God calls Moses back up to the mountain and gives him the law again and God and he wrote it on tablets when Moses then returned back to the people after being with God on the mountain receiving again the law the Bible says that his skin his face glowed. He had residual glowing from being in the presence of God. This caused the people to be afraid. 
to be, to even look on the face of Moses. And they ask him to cover his face with a veil, to put on a mask. Even the reflective fading glory, or the fading glow of the glory of God was enough to strike fear into the heart of the people. Exodus chapter 34 uh, says, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he uh, was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. This is the glory and the veil that Paul is referencing in our passage today. The comparison of the law of Moses, in in, in comparison to the law of Moses, Paul makes clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the new covenant purchased by the blood of Jesus is better than, greater than, and more glorious than anything the old covenant could bring. More glorious even than the old covenant was. Now, You may ask, rightly so, what relevance does the law of Moses have for us today? And I want to make this clear because as I'm preaching today, I'm going to refer a lot to the law of Moses and to Moses in contrast to the new covenant and Jesus. And here's the relevance for us today. Outside of salvation in Jesus. So if you do not know Jesus today and you've not been saved by the blood of Jesus today, you are then still relying on the law of Moses, even if you don't know what that is. And the reason why that is is because if you've not been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, then you're trying to be good. You're trying to be right before God in your own effort and in your own righteousness. And if you don't hear anything else here today, hear this. Your righteousness, your goodness is not good enough, right enough to stand before a holy God. That's why Israelites were so afraid even to be near Moses who had been near the presence of God because his glory in their presence of being sinful and trying to be justified by the law, they understood for them to approach that glory was dangerous and they would surely die. So whether or not you know who Moses is, whether or not you know where the law is, whether or not you can recite the Ten Commandments or not, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, your life has not been surrendered to the, uh, to the to salvation in Jesus in faith, therefore you're not saved, then by definition, you are still trying to hold on to the law of Moses, to some semblance of righteousness in your own way, in your own effort to be right before God. You're trying to be a good person by your own effort. So this morning from chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, I, I want to show you three ways that the new covenant is better than, greater than, more glorious than the old covenant. And I want to make the case this morning to let loose of the law and take hold of Jesus. Here are the three things, and then we'll work through them individually. Number one, Jesus alone provides evidence of salvation. I'll say Jesus provides true evidence of salvation. Number two, Jesus is more glorious than the law. The new covenant is more glorious and wonderful than the glory of the law. And then lastly, Jesus makes you holy and righteous before the Father. Let's begin with Jesus provides true evidence. Now, in the first six verses of chapter 6, 
Paul writes about letters of recommendation. And so what he's talking about there is proof or testimony of both the legitimacy of their ministry, the legitimacy of the, of the church's salvation, and who proves that amongst each other. Jesus, dear friends, provides true evidence of salvation. The Spirit of God in you is the testimony of conversion. Now, credentials in, in, in the first century and in our day as well are the proof of an achievement or qualification. And we use credentials in almost every era, um, element of our lives. So you are not free to perform certain services without earning the, the qualifying credentials. You may have a fascination with surgery and medicine, but unless you go to medical school and are certified and pass the boards, you can't perform surgery, legally anyway. You may have a fascination with flight. You may be an expert on the flight simulator on your computer at home, but unless you go get a pilot's license and are certified to fly, you can't fly yourself, much less fly others in a commercial airline. You may be very smart. Academics may have come easy for you, and you may be a walking encyclopedia, but unless you've gone through the credentialing process, you can't teach in the public school system. You're not free to enjoy certain privileges either without receiving the qualifying credentials. That's true for like private clubs and, 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 uh, and properties. You, you can't access the benefits and, or, uh, provided to private societies unless you are properly credentialed. You ought to look up sometime the, the, um, the, the, the Society of Cincinnati. It's the oldest hereditary society in the United States. And in order to get in that club, in order to be in that society, you have to, have, you have to be the firstborn descendant all the way through the generations of one who fought in the Revolutionary War, which means most of us will never be in that society because you don't have the right credentials. One of the oldest and most common forms of credentialing is to give letters of recommendation. That's what Paul is talking about in these first six verses. Letters of recommendation are letters from someone who is known and trusted to another confirming that the letter bearer can be trusted and should be received. In other words, this person is authentic. This person is trustworthy. This person is true. And Paul says in verse 1 that such letters of recommendation are not needed. Look at what he says. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some, of, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now, he's asking that, not saying that he should. He's saying, that's ridiculous. What proves salvation, what proves the reality of conversion is not your letter for us or our letter for you. Friends, the testimony of being a child of God is not from letters of recommendation, but from Christ himself filling your heart with his own spirit. Listen to me carefully. The testimony of being a child of God is not from letters of recommendation, but from Christ himself filling your heart with his own spirit. God's law was external. It was written on tablets of stone. Something you did, something you performed. But God's Spirit fills you from the inside out, and it is something that you are. This 
recently, just in the last 10 days, I, I got news of a, someone we, it was in a former church of ours who I do not think knows Jesus. They've got a bad medical diagnosis. We got word, pray for this person. And I remember my time pastoring them. I remembered they did not pursue Jesus. They pursued worldly things and had a loose association with the church. And so I, I responded because I thought, well, certainly pray for their physical well-being. But dear friends, the reality of it is if the Lord tarries, it's appointed to each of us wants to die. So I really wanted to know, has God done anything new in their heart? So I, I wrote them back and I said, where is their relationship with Jesus? And here's the response I got. Well, he joined the church when he was a kid. That's a letter of recommendation, isn't it? But that doesn't prove your salvation. Friends, you can take a church membership letter and put it in your pocket, and it's worth nothing if the Spirit of the living God does not dwell in your heart. God's Spirit fills you from the inside out. That is the testimony that you are His. And when you are filled with the Spirit of the living God, that's how we have life from the Spirit. So the credentials of the law are earned. You be, you, you, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're trying to get your credentials from the law, you're testifying to what you've done and what you've not done. But the endorsement of God is given by His Spirit. Don't miss that huge distinction. Credentials of the law are earned, but the credentials of the Spirit are given. Paul knew what he was talking about on this matter because he had been one who attempted to achieve righteousness through the law. When he wrote to the Philippians, he wrote these words. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he begins to brag a bit. And he says, listen, I was, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to a law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. To all the pride that one can take in their own righteousness, Paul says in verse 6, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And the reason why he says that is because you can never earn enough credentials from the law to be righteous before a holy God. It was right for Israel to be afraid of the demonstration of God's glory, even separated by a mountain. Because God is holy and they were not. It was right for them to be afraid to look upon the residual glowing of Moses' face from having been in the glory of God. It testified to God's glory and it condemned them in their unrighteousness. As good as you are and as hard as you try, you can never earn enough credentials to be right before God. That's why Paul says in verse 6, the letter kills. The letter of the law kills because it condemns. But the Spirit gives life. Through the gift of the Spirit of God, sinners are made righteous, and the broken and stained are made glorious and pure. Friends, the only true testimony unto salvation is the testimony of the Spirit indwelling in your heart. Jesus, Jesus gives the true evidence of salvation. Number two, Jesus is more glorious 
than the law. Now, this is an important point I want to make so that you hear very, you understand very clearly. This will be beginning in verse 7. So Paul makes a statement in case we are confused about the importance and the significance of the law. And he says in verse 7, Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, let's be very, very clear. The law given to Moses by God was glorious. It was wonderfully glorious. The law testified to the glory and the righteousness of God. The law testified to the sinfulness and corruption of man. It demonstrated the separation between God and man. But notice that I use the word past tense was. Because the glory of the law was temporary and fading. Now, God is eternal and never changing. Thus, the actions of God are never reactionary to events on the ground. So, it is wrong to think that the new covenant is a response to the old covenant not working out as God had planned it. It is wrong to think that Jesus is a response to somehow the redemptive plan of God through the law not being sufficient enough and having to come up with a plan B or a second way. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So even as he gave us the law and he gave it through Moses, he was giving it through Moses with the intention to redeem us through Jesus. The, old, the new covenant is not God's second attempt of redemption. It's not the new and improved approach to redeeming man from sin. And likewise, the law was not a failed attempt at redemption. It wasn't a first try, a beta version, or a prototype. The law was intended to be temporary in the redemptive plan of God. Listen to how Paul says it in Galatians chapter, chapter 3 where he says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, the, the temporary nature of the law takes nothing away from the fact that it was glorious. It was God's law. We read the law today and we, 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 we again come to understand the glory of God's righteousness, the perfection of his eternity. The law gloriously revealed the righteousness of God. It gloriously testified to the perfection of God. And the law perfectly reflected the, the glory of God. The law was, past tense, glorious. But Paul's point here, here's the big point. The law was glorious, but salvation is exceedingly more glorious. Let verse 9, just take your eyes, put it on verse 9 for just a moment, and let this word rest, sink on into your heart. Paul says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, glory, goodness, God intended perfection, the will of God, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. In other words, the law was good, it was perfect. It was intended by God. Oh, if the, the glory of the law of condemnation was glorious, how much more exceedingly must the glory of God's redemptive plan through the new covenant 
be. There was glory in the condemnation of the law because it flowed from the, from the glorious throne of God, declaring his righteousness and exposing our sin. Yet the great hope of the gospel is that the hope of salvation overshadows, outshines the former glory of the law, at least in two ways. Outshines the, the glory of God and is, outshines the glory of the law and is permanent, everlasting. It overshadows the former glory of the law in that it, that it outshines it. It's, it's, it's brighter than, it's more glorious than. Verse 10 says that it surpasses it. The law was glorious, but Jesus and the salvation he brings surpasses it significantly, exceedingly. The law pointed to our need for redemption. The salvation of Jesus provides for our redemption. Redemption. The law pointed to God's righteousness and exposed man's sin, but the salvation of Jesus atones for sin and makes the redeemed righteous before a holy God. It's more glorious. And then the second thing Paul says is that the new covenant is permanent and everlasting. Look in verse 11. For it will, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Listen carefully. The law was temporary, but the salvation of Jesus is everlasting. The law demanded continual sacrifices for sin. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the once for all Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The glory of the law was from the start fading. But the glory of Christ's salvation never dims. In fact, it only grows more glorious. Thirdly, through the exceedingly more glorious gift of the redemption of Jesus. Jesus makes you holy before the Father. Look at what he says in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, speaking of the glory of the new covenant, the redemption of Jesus, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Friends, through the work of salvation and the blood of Jesus, you can have freedom to be in the presence of God. The hope of the gospel is that the separation between man and God is removed. Amen. <laughs> Everything about the testimony of the law testified to the separation between God and man. When you read Exodus chapter 20 all the way through 34, you see that separation over and over and over again. The separation began by God saying, listen, you come up on a mountain to meet me. Don't let the rest of the people come, for they will surely die. In fact, giving them instructions how far away from the mountain they were to remain. 
because they could not be even near the presence of the glory of God. The people were afraid to hear directly from God because they understood it was dangerous for sinful people to draw close to the holiness of God. When Moses returned from, the, uh, from being on the mountain with God, even the residual glow, fading as it was, was too much for the people, and they begged him to hide his face. Because even the reflective, fading glow of Moses' skin was too glorious for sinful people to be in the presence of. Later, when the tabernacle was constructed, and then again the building of the temple, there was a veil separating where God dwelt from everybody else. Because the holiness of God is separated from sinful, wicked people. Listen to me, friends. There's no amount of law-keeping that you'll ever be able to do in order for you to be able to stand in the presence of God in your own effort. You'll never be good enough to step through the veil into the presence of the living God. As long as you remain in your sin and in your effort, you'll always be separated off the mountain, turning your face away outside of the presence of God. But Paul says, not like Moses. Remember now, Moses was the one who actually went into the tent of meeting. Moses is the one who went up on the mountain. He says, not even like Moses. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about special prophets and preachers? No, he's talking about any of you who would believe on Jesus. We are very bold, not like Moses, to stand into the presence of God. Friends, in Jesus, there is no longer a veil separating the redeemed from the Father. That's why he says in, in verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil is removed for the redeemed to approach the glory and the presence of God. And if that were not good news enough, then Paul says that we are transformed to radiate the glory of God. So not only are we able to enter the presence of God's glory, but we ourselves, through the work of redemption, are transformed from glory unto glory to radiate the very glory of God. So the climax of this whole chapter is verse 38, excuse me, verse 18, where he says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Moses reflected the glory of God. He reflected God's glory. It was reflected glory. It was temporary glory. It was fading glory. Moses glowed with the glory of God on the outside, his skin. And Moses had to walk up a mountain to be in the presence of God. But those who've been transformed by Jesus are welcomed to dwell in the holy of holies. Those who've been transformed by Jesus are changed, transformed, transfigured. A change from the outside coming from the inside to radiate the very glory of God. Glory unto glory, becoming more and more like Jesus. And friends, the glory of the redeemed never ends. When Jesus returns, 
The redeemed will receive glorified bodies and dwell in the glory of God forever and ever and ever again. That's better than the glory that Moses knew. So trying to think how to, how to illustrate the intensity of what's happening here. I thought of my old Maglite three-cell D flashlight. Now some of you not, are not old enough to know what that is. If you're not old enough to know what it is, Night at Museum movie, Security guard. He had one. There's a. It used to be that the Maglite was one of the best flashlights you could buy. Maglite flashlights came in various sizes, from the largest version that required 6D batteries all the way down to ones that just required little two, two AA batteries. And the largest ones were not cheap. It was a big deal if you bought one. But the cost was justifiable because the, because the, the, the flashlights were pretty rugged. I mean, you could use them like a baton if you needed to. They were, they were tough. And they would take almost any abuse you, you put on them. And so other than changing batteries and maybe a, a, a light bulb every now and then, they just worked. Probably about 20 years ago, I purchased a three-cell D mag light. So it was about that long. And the entire time I owned the flashlight, it performed as well as it did on the day that I bought it. Now, I used the past tense owned because recently I threw my flashlight away. In more recent years, I stored that flashlight in the top drawer of my toolbox. But recently I was going through my storage room and I was throwing out things that no longer needed, no longer worked, and I came to my mag light. I hit the power button on it, it came to life. And yet I threw it away anyway. I discarded my mag light not because it no longer worked. In fact, it worked just as well that day as it did the day that I purchased it. It wasn't that the batteries had corroded, they were fine. It wasn't that the light bulb wasn't working, it was fine. It wasn't that it didn't shine, it certainly shined. I threw the flashlight away because the brilliance of its light no longer seemed all that bright compared to even the cheapest flashlights you can buy or sometimes people will just give you as swag. The three-cell D maglite put out approximately 45 lumens. That may impress you. However, today there are some keychain flashlights that'll put out upwards of 500 lumens. Maglite's not so impressive anymore, is it? On the extreme end, if you're looking for a Christmas present, here it is. On the extreme end, the brightest flashlight available on the market today is the Emulent MS-18. This flashlight puts out 100,000 lumens. When you put it in turbo mode, which is the brightest 
It has fans that sound like a jet engine taking off to keep the flashlight cool. For the one minute, it'll shine at 100,000 lumens. When I originally bought my Maglite, I was impressed, proud of it even, with its ability to shine. Oh, you could focus the beam. All 45 of its lumens. However, 45 lumens of the incandescent light of my Maglite loses all of its charm when compared to 100,000 lumens coming out of another flashlight. It's not that my Maglite has lost its glory. Listen to me carefully. It's not that my Maglite had lost its glory, but rather something better something more powerful, something exceedingly more bright overshadowed it and outshined it. The glory of my maglite seemed like no glory at all when compared to the emulent MS-18. And such it is with the law of God. When the law was given to Moses, it was glorious. But compared to the glory of Christ and the salvation he brings, it cannot compare. The glory of Christ never dims. It never fades. It never ends. The glory of Christ is brighter and more glorious than anything before it. And so, friends, my my encouragement to you this morning is this. If you're still hanging on to the law of Moses, If you're still hanging on to trying to be good, that's like hanging on to Maglite thinking it's got some kind of special brightness. There's something better. There's something more glorious. Come and know Jesus. Come and know His glory. Come and experience the everlasting hope that is found in Him and His redemption. Jesus is better. The gospel is greater. His redemption is more glorious than anything the law can provide. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.